please do take a seat. And could you turn to Esther chapter 7? You've got a Bible with you, Esther chapter 7. I'm going to read um, all of that chapter. And just as you're turning there, it's not the easiest book in the Bible to find. But as you're turning there, let me remind you uh, of uh, the story so far. Esther is a queen who's married the the king of the Persian Empire. He rules over almost all the the known world of that that day. She's a Jew, but she's been taken from her homeland. Uh, And this evil vizier, this chief minister, Haman, uh, because he's fallen out with Esther's cousin Mordecai, has sent out a decree that all the Jews will be butchered in the 12th month of the year. Um, Esther has gone before the king uh, to plead for her people's lives. And as we begin chapter 7, she's had two banquets with the king and Haman, the baddie. uh, But this is the the banquet where finally uh, she will speak to the king. So Esther 7 and verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day... As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favour in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our our affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Well, it continues to be a strange and mysterious story, uh, almost more Arabian Nights uh, than the Bible. Uh, but what I, what I want to do this morning is, is dig into Esther 7 and um, see both what it has to say to God's people when they first heard the story, but also what it has to say to us uh, today. And a little bit unlike previous weeks, I, I want to try and spend a bit of time Um, helping us understand how we move from Esther 7 to our own lives today. Um, This is an incredible story, but it's a story 
that is part not just of the Bible, but the story of God's plan for the whole world. And so as unlikely as it may seem to you this morning, particularly if you're here for the first time, you're visiting, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this story has relevance for your life. In fact, it is vitally important for your life, not just right now, but for eternity. So let's dive in, because it is a rollicking read. Uh, I've set the scene somewhat already. The, The Jewish people are under threat of death from this man, Haman. And Esther, the queen, has been encouraged by Mordecai, her cousin, to plead for her people's lives. Twice she's had a banquet with the king and Haman already, and she's sort of dropped hints that she's got something big on her mind she wants to ask for. But she's not come out explicitly and said it. And so in verse 1, we we come to the, the third feast between Esther and Haman. And again, for the third time, the king says, what is your wish? What is your request? Even up to half your kingdom. What is your wish? What is your request? And Esther, Esther has learned how to play the king. If you've been with us through the story, you'll know the king is not a, not a trustworthy guy. He's already got rid of one wife. He's pretty impulsive. He's not a man to be trifled with. And so Esther uses his own language back to him. Do you see there uh, in verse 3? If I found favour on your sight, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. My wish, my request. This is my wish, she says, my life. This is my request, my people's life. For the first time, Esther reveals that she is Jewish. It seems so far she's been keeping a low profile, her head down. But now she comes out and says, no, the Jews are my people. I am one of them. Now, as we saw last time, she, she's clever with her language, wise with her language. She knows if she goes head to head with the king, walks in there and scolds him. How dare you do this to my people? What do you think you're doing signing a decree to have us all killed? She knows probably he'll get angry and he'll get nowhere. So, so she makes it sound as if it isn't his fault. Uh, verse four, we have been sold. Well, who, who got the money for the, the, the slaughter of Jesus? It's the king. You've sold us, is what she could have said, but she's too clever for that. We've been sold. Um, she picks up the language of Haman's decree in verse 4. We're going to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. That is what Haman said would happen to the people. There's no exaggerating. And she therefore kind of manoeuvres her husband into a position where she's not directly challenging him, and he almost has to agree to her wish and her request. Um, She doesn't say, it is your vizier, your chief minister, who you put in place who has caused this trouble. She makes it sound like, well, it's just sort of happened. But Ahasuerus is furious, verse 5. Who is he? Who's dared to do this? Apparently, I'm no good at Hebrew, but his, his words apparently are kind of really like a machine gun, staccato. Who is he? Where is he? Who's done this? Who dares? He's angry. And finally, Esther reveals it. A foe, a man, hateful and hostile, this wicked man, and then she points, Ahasuerus. Sorry, this wicked man, Haman. This wicked man. The only other person in the room. And the king leaves the room to go to his balcony, his garden balcony, to work out what to do. Now let's stop there. Just in those first six verses, what what are they about? 
They're all about, I want to suggest to you, a saviour who stoops. A saviour who stoops. How do we deal with these kind of stories? There's no narrator saying, and this means that. There's no commentary. Two questions I think we can ask that help us as we read these uh, stories, really any Old Testament story. The first is, what, what would it have meant to, to someone reading it, an original reader, a, a Jewish child perhaps, hearing the story at the Festival of Purim, we'll see in a week or two's time that all the events of Esther are celebrated in every year, even to this day. In fact, Purim is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and this scroll of Esther, this story is read. What, what does it mean to them? Children, imagine you're a little Jewish boy or girl, maybe 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, sitting at the feast, hearing this story. What would they be thinking? Well, I think they'd be thinking something like this, wouldn't they? They'd be thinking, we, we the Jewish people, we were living under this death sentence. It was hanging over us and there was nothing we could do about it. There was no way we could escape. Our salvation was, was out of our hands. Some of us knew it was coming. We'd heard the decree. It had been spread around the empire by the king's messengers. Some of us perhaps hadn't heard it, but we were still all going to die. There was nothing we could do. All our hope rested on one person up there in the king's palace. This queen, this royal ruler, Esther. And she was living in luxury and safety. But she, as we come to chapter 7 of our story, she risked it all. She revealed that she was one of us. She identified with us. She went before the king and said, we are her people. <coughs> she bound her life to ours. Our lives and deaths were now inextricably tied together. In other words, she put herself under the death threat in order to save us. This is the moment in the story, the great turning point, when Esther reveals her identity, identifies with the people. Do you see what what she says again, that key verse in verse 3? Let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Not one without the other. Not just spare me, king. I'm your queen after all. But spare my people. So a little Jewish child on Purim, I think would reflect on the story something like that. Here is the time this great queen identified with us, bound our lives together. And perhaps the cogs are already whirring. Uh, if you've been around church a while. Because the second question, if the first question is, what would this have meant to, to someone originally? The second question, of course, is, well, for us now. <coughs> and the principle, really, is that all of Scripture points to Christ. We can ask what did it mean to them then, but then we have to say all of Scripture points to Christ. Children, do you remember the story after the resurrection where Jesus is walking along the road with the disciples? There's two disciples, and they don't realise it's him. In fact, they're kept from recognising who he is. And they're gutted. Jesus died. He's been buried. And they think the whole thing has, has fallen apart. It's all in Luke 24. And they're walking along the road to Emmaus. And Jesus says, well, what's the matter? Why are you so sad? Why are you so down? And they say, well, there was this guy, Jesus. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was going to save us. We thought the great rescue was going to come. But then he was killed. 
And Jesus says that he doesn't reveal who he is. He doesn't sort of say, da-da, look, hello, I'm back. Instead, he says, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe. And it's like he turns to Genesis 1 and starts teaching them. He goes to the law and the prophets. He goes to the Old Testament, as we'd call it. And we read this, beginning with Moses, who wrote Genesis, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he took the Old Testament and said, look, here is Jesus, crucified and risen in all the Old Testament. John, what is the book of Haggai about in the Old Testament? Adults, what if I were to pick on you? Maybe I should just point in a minute. Zechariah, what's it about? John, you want to nominate an adult? Two Chronicles. What is it about? Hezekiah. It's not a book. Yeah, trick one. Um, John, it's very easy. They're all about Jesus, ultimately. Okay, that's, always, that's the answer. Let's got to sum this up. But they all point forward to Jesus. They're all signposts to Jesus. And so is the book of Esther. Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. So, John, imagine the Bible is like a pop-up book. Do you ever have a pop-up book? You open it and up pops a sort of figure and it's a clown on one page, an elephant on the next. A book about the circus, maybe. Um, the, every page pops up Jesus. When I was little, I had um, a detective book, John. Uh, um, it came with a little red kind of magnifying glass. And when you held the magnifying glass over the page and looked through the magnifying glass, then clues appeared in the background you couldn't see until you used the magnifying glass. So you might suddenly see some footprints leading away from the window. Uh, you might see a candlestick hidden behind the armchair. You couldn't fully understand the book without the lens and the gospel, the good news of Jesus is like that lens. We're to read Esther 7, not like we don't know the end of the story. Rather, we're to read that Esther 7 through the lens of the gospel. Now, if you've ever read a, a detective novel, a Sherlock Holmes or a Agatha Christie or Poirot or whatever, uh, then you'll know if, you, if you've read the story more than once, you know the second time you read it, it's different, isn't it? As you read through the story, ah, oh, okay, that's why he left the gloves above the fireplace. Oh, this time I noticed that the dog didn't bark, or whatever it may be. The first time through, you, you might well miss all those things. It's not that they're not there, it's just that you don't necessarily notice them, or don't realise their significance. Well, we read Esther, we read the Old Testament, like people who have already read the end of the story, already know where it's going. I don't know what the author of Esther thought or knew about the coming Christ. I just don't know. I don't even know who wrote Esther. No one does. But we don't need to know exactly what, what's in his mind. A few of us have been talking about this these last few weeks. Because we know the end, we know the, the end to which the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of Esther, was heading. And that is to portray from a different angle the great diamond of the gospel, the great good news of the Christian faith. So, so with that lens, that red filter of the gospel, as it were, over Esther 7, we're not bringing things in. We're seeing, ah, now what are we seeing? We're singing, I think, the saviour who stoops in these first few verses. God's people under a death sentence. 
Well, that is not just the Jews in, in, in the reign of Ahasuerus, but all of us. The wages of sin are death, is death. Again, if this is new news to you, perhaps, but none of us have lived as we ought to have done. We all have ignored God. We have no space for him in our hearts. We live lives for ourselves. And God's right judgment on that is death, eternal death, not just a sword, but the eternity of hell. Uh, We, like the Jews in Esther's empire, we are helpless. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is nothing you can do to escape that judgment. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you say a prayer. It doesn't matter how many old ladies you help across the road. It doesn't matter whether you think your good deeds might slightly outweigh your bad. It doesn't matter if you can find a hundred people who are worse than you. It's like trying to jump across the English Channel. You might be able to jump 20 yards, someone else might be able to jump 10, but you cannot jump the whole way. We've all fallen far short. We are totally helpless, and our fate lies, like the Jews, in one person's hands. Not Esther's, of course, but Christ's. And Jesus is is therefore an even greater Esther. The similarities are not exact, because Esther isn't Jesus. You can think of all sorts of ways Esther is different from Jesus. She's a woman, he's a man, for example. But, but that's not the point. The point is she's a shadow, a signpost. And he exceeds her. But her story is, is, is part of the kind of beautiful robes in which Christ comes dressed. Part of the way that God shows him off to us. Christ was not naturally one of us. But he chose to identify, like Esther, he chose to say, these are going to be my people. Even though he was under no obligation to do so. He said to his father, my wish and my request is that you save them, spare them death. Esther risked her life. Christ knew he would have to give it up. He, like she, identified with the cursed people. He identified with us as humans. We've thought about that in previous weeks. He became one of us. More amazing, though, he identified us as, with us as helpless sinners. He didn't just say, Lord, uh, Father in heaven, treat me like a human, but treat me like a cursed human, a condemned human. This is incredible. If you, if you stop and think about it, Because Jesus, more than anyone, Jesus, the son of God, more than anyone, knew what it would be like to become a cursed person. Someone to whom God was at total enmity. Someone from whom all blessing of God had been removed. And someone on whom all the righteous anger of God would be poured. He alone really understood that. None of us really understand that whether we're Christian or not. None of us really understand it. But he did. And yet still he came. And he came and made himself defenceless. He identified us with us fully as sinners, as cursed people. He was totally innocent. Never sinned. Not once. Not even one thought went astray. Children, have you seen that the Harry Potter movies or read the books? Remember once in there that... Dumbledore, that the headmaster kind of pulls thoughts out of people's minds. They're like little silver wiggly strands and drops them in a bowl. 
Imagine every thought of Jesus pulled out. It was pure. Not one of them had anything dark in it. No sin whatsoever. There was no need for him to be cursed. And yet he said, curse me instead. He could not plead his innocence. He was giving up all defence. He had every right to say, no, this isn't fair. But he didn't. He gave up all defence, all argument, all pleading. And instead, he had to experience the darkness and the terror of having all goodness withdrawn and all anger poured on him. Total identification, total swap with us. He looked to heaven and said, I am them. Treat me like them. And therefore he experienced that curse in all its fullness. The mental anguish, the unimaginable pain of the cross. And therefore he identified, if you're a Christian here this morning, or if you come to him for the first time, he took on his shoulders, he identified with you, even in your specific sins. When Nick led us earlier and asked us to call to mind our sins, to confess our sins, I don't know what came to your mind. But every one of those specific sins, Jesus said, treat me like her. Treat me like him. It's as if he says, look, I know that at five past ten on Friday, Phil lost his temper with Angela. Treat me like him. I know, I know that Sarah hasn't prayed for two months. Treat me like that prayerless woman. I know the coldness, the icy coldness, Father, of Alicia's love for you. Treat me like that. I know Dave's addiction to pornography. Treat me like that. On and on he goes and identifies with us in all our specific sins. And that is incredible news for us. That means every one of those sins has been paid for, atoned for. Both the things you've done that you ought not to have done and the things you haven't done. He drained every drop of that cup of wrath, the the foaming poison, in order that you can go to the banquet, feast forever in in the everlasting halls of the King, of God the Father. Uh, Some of us live our lives fearful. Have I done enough for God? The answer is no, you haven't, but Christ has, and he's paid for it all. There is nothing else to do. You are as helpless as a Jew in the empire, but he has paid for it all. Some of us fear God doesn't love us, perhaps the circumstances of our lives, we doubt. We look to the cross and we see he chose to be there. He identified voluntarily, even with us in our sin. That's love you can cling to in the darkness. A saviour who stoops, not just to be among us, but to be treated as the worst of us. And face the curse in all its fullness in order that you might receive the blessing. Your sins no longer will stand against you, no longer will cut you off from paradise if they've all been put on his shoulders. The saviour who stoops. Much more briefly, uh, the second part of our passage, verses 7 through 10, the destroyer destroyed. The destroyer destroyed. It's back to the action. The king has stormed out into the the palace garden. Uh, He's a bit stuck. What's he going to do? He has signed this law at the end of the day. 
for all Esther's kind of subtle words, it is him who signed off and said, yes, Haman, you can slaughter who you like. So he's going to have to choose between his wife, his queen, and his vizier, who he has promoted. Uh, but Haman detects that he's in trouble. Do you see that? He, he sees in verse 7 that harm was determined against him by the king. And so he, he, he's in this quandary. He, he, he can't go out and follow the king because the king's cross with him. Uh, if he leaves the room, it looks like he's running away, doesn't it? You know, I'm guilty and he's trying to flee. But equally, the law of the Persians said that, that no man could stay alone in the room with one of the king's harem. In fact, you weren't allowed with, within seven steps uh, of one of the queens, sorry, one of the king's uh, harem. He's totally stuck. Esther has him trapped. And so he decides, well, I'll fall on the couch, verse 8. Um, now, given you're not allowed within seven steps, this is pretty dumb. In fact, it's so dumb that um, uh, the Jews, in, in, when they translated their Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic, one of the versions at least, um, they add a little bit in, because it seems so incredible that he would do this. They add a bit in that, that Gabriel gave him a shove, the angel Gabriel, which would have pushed him over. I quite like that. Not true, but I quite like it. So there he is. And there's an irony there. Do you see the language uh, in verse uh, 8? Haman fell. He was falling on the couch. On the couch, sorry. Falling on the couch. This whole drama began because Mordecai would not fall down before Haman and bow. And now Haman is falling before Esther, Mordecai's cousin, this Jewish orphaned girl. This language of falling is exactly the language, in fact, that, that Haman's wife, Zeresh, used at the end of chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 13, his wife and, and his wise men say to, to Haman, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, then you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. You're going to fall, they say. And here he is, falling before Esther. Well, the king returns, and suddenly his dilemma is solved. He doesn't need to make an awkward kind of political decision between um, getting rid of a guy he put in power and his wife. Here is this guy assaulting his wife. Now, he probably isn't assaulting, and probably a hash rush knew that, but it's a convenient way of getting rid of him. And so Haman, uh, his head is covered, and then Harbona pops up. Now, Harbona maybe is a bit cross with Haman. He's one of the other officials, and... Um, it probably isn't in, in um, Haman's good books. So Haman's face is covered. Verse 9, Harbona pops up. And goes, Look at that. Look out the window there. Do you, do you see that? Do you see that massive gallows? That massive stake that Haman built to crucify the, the guy that saved your life, King? Look at that. He doesn't suggest anything doing with it. Just points it out. Just saying. He's doing it. Look at that. And King Hashwash. Ah, oh, I've got a brilliant plan. Why don't you hang Haman on it? And you imagine how Bone is going, oh, what a brilliant plan. Yeah, I don't know how you come up with it. How do you do this? What an emperor. And so out Haman goes and is hanged on literally the tree. Uh, when we read about hanging and gallows, we think of kind of, I don't know, smugglers being hanged in a noose and watch Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever. But this is a big stake. Literally the word is a tree. It's the same as the word tree in the Old Testament. The tree of life or whatever. It's a tree word. Um, great big stake in the ground. Again, what are we to make with this? As we come to an end, what are we to make about this as Christians? Well, what about those two principles again? 
first readers and the fact that it all points to Christ. For the first readers, what do they see? They read and they hear the persecutor of God's people is hanged on a tree. The very tree he was going to hang our leader on. The instrument that was meant to destroy a righteous Jewish man has become the instrument of destruction for God's enemy. And again, I imagine many of you are there already. As we think about how it points forward to Christ, the instrument of execution is the instrument of salvation. The tree, literally, the tree of cursing that was meant to be a cursing to God's people as Mordecai was killed has become the tree of blessing. The tree on which the righteous man was to be hanged is the tree on which the accuser instead is hanged. The devil is the great enemy, the true Haman, the great enemy of God's people, the true accuser, the one who wants to destroy us. He tempted, John, do you remember this? He tempted Adam and Eve to betray God at a tree, the tree that God put in the centre of the garden. That tree was meant for blessing, but it became a curse to us in the devil's twisted plans. But then a second Adam comes on the scene, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And the devil arranges for another tree. He enters into Judas and gets Jesus betrayed. He gets him hanged on a tree. The devil knows the scriptures. He knows Deuteronomy. Cursed is everybody who is hanged on a tree. Under God's curse, if you're hanged on a tree. His plan is to destroy Christ. And it seemed to be going so well. There was Jesus, the supposed saviour, the righteous Jew, hanged on a tree. It looked like the devil had triumphed, and yet, and yet there was another great reversal. Come with me to Hebrews 2, right through to the New Testament. Hebrews 2, and verse 14. Let's go through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, all the letters that end in kind of Ian's and that. Um, the Timothy's, the Titus, Hebrews. Hebrews 2. And just one verse, Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14, speaking about Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, okay, since humans have got flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, shared in the same things. He became flesh and blood, became humans. That through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Through death, Christ destroys the devil. The cross was the place where the devil was destroyed, not Jesus. It took his death, but it was his death, his being hanged on the tree, that destroys the devil. Not destroys him in terms of takes him out of existence, he still prowls around. But his power is gone. He can no longer hurt you. The only hold the devil has over human beings is to point to the law and say, God, look, you are the Holy One, the Almighty One. And look how Emma has behaved. Look how Frank has behaved. Look how Ben has behaved. Look how John T has behaved. He has not kept the law. And you know, holy, majestic God, you know that sin deserves death the wage of sin is death that is your word in fact i remember hearing in the garden of eden you say the day they eat of the tree the day they rebel they will surely die are you going to break your word and just forget about this sin 
Are you going to be a liar? Because if you're going to be truthful, God, you must kill these people. That is the weapon the devil wields. Forget the horror movies and the weird possessions and spinning heads and pointy pitchforks, all that sort of stuff. That is the weapon. The weapon to accuse. And although he may be evil, his point is still true. A wicked lawyer can still make a valid case. But now the Lord of life, Jesus, comes and hangs on the tree and bears our curse. He tastes death, bears our sin. And so that tree of cursing for Jesus becomes a tree of blessing for his people. The cross becomes the true tree of life. The one place you can come, flee to, that place of gory death. It's likely that that Haman um, was spiked. He's not hung on a rope, he's spiked, he's impaled. It's a kind of early form of crucifixion. It is gory and grim, but it is the place of life. Jesus there says, I am them. They are me. We are bound together. What's theirs is mine. Their curse is mine. And so therefore what is mine is theirs. Eternal life. Becoming children of God. I am the son of God. And so too they are now sons and daughters. So Satan, you have no charge. You have no power. The cross is the great reversal in all of history. I remember hearing someone say it's the biggest joke in history and they weren't being offensive. What they were meaning was it's the time when the tables were turned so that now God's people can laugh at the devil. I've told the story before of Martin Luther and I I never know with Luther whether he's exaggerating or whether he was nuts or... But anyway, great stories. Um, He talks about waking up one night and the devil's at the foot of his bed and the devil starts saying to Luther, Luther, you great reformer, you great theologian, you great minister, you great preacher... I know your sins. And he starts reading out their sins. And Luther says he lay in bed, listened to him. And when the devil finally finished, he said, thank you, Saint Satan, for reminding me that I am a sinner, but I have a greater saviour. Now, here are some sins you missed. (laughs) It is that confidence, not in himself, but because of the cross. That is how safe you are. Whatever you failed to do, whatever you've done that you should not have done, flee to the cross It is the only place of salvation. Don't think there's any other way. But it is a place of total salvation because the saviour has stooped and the devil has been destroyed. Nothing can stand against you. And so that is the confidence to go into this week with, full of that love that God has shown you. And as that love slowly works its way into your heart and head and hands, well, that's what empowers us to then live for him. But all flows from the cross, the tree of life, where the one who is the way, the truth of life died in order that we might live. The great reversal, the greatest joke in history. The time when the sun stooped and the devil was destroyed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would spend... Uh, all our days at the foot of the cross. Each day as we wake, we begin there and look again and see the Lord Jesus cursed for us. We begin each day and see there the devil with all his accusations destroyed at Calvary. Would we trust not in ourselves one jot, one iota, but entirely in him. Thank you. We praise you for that love. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you drank down the depths of the curse. Uh, that the dank odours of hell 
you breathed in in order that they might never touch us. Fill us, therefore, we pray, with the Spirit uh, you won for us and allow us to go out of this place with joy and confidence um, to serve you in newness of life. We commit ourselves to you uh, from the foot of the cross. Amen.